from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello, and you're listening to the Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Beth Oppenheim, a researcher, and today I'm talking to Camila Mortera-Martinez, a senior researcher, and she's on the line with me from Brussels. Hi, Camino. Hi, Beth. So we wrote a paper together back in December on legal migration, and I thought it'd be interesting for us to revisit this now a few months on. The migration crisis is over, so to speak. The numbers of sea arrivals are down by 90% since the peak of the crisis in 2015. But what we're finding is that the populist rhetoric hasn't abated, and the EU response or its migration policies is still largely driven by reflex responses to populist rhetoric. And in our paper, what we really identify, I think, is that European migration policy is lopsided, so it's more addressing the control aspect but doesn't provide sufficient legal channels for migrants. And so I think what we do in our paper is we make the argument for more effective legal routes to protect Europe's security, uphold EU values and boost the economy. You see, Beth, I think when we wrote the paper and we were saying that the migration crisis was over, I'm actually kind of revisiting that idea right now. I do think we've got a migration, a European migration crisis, which is not based on numbers, but is based on values and rhetoric. And the reason why it is so important to keep this in mind, it's because migration is going to feature very, very highly in the campaigns of mostly populist nativist parties in the lead up to the European elections. And migration is still one of the, of the top concerns of Europeans, even though the numbers are not there to justify that. So I wonder whether we can really say that the crisis is over when everything we talk about is basically migration and policies against migration and how to stop uh, migration. I think the word crisis, it's a really important issue in how this policy is being framed. The crisis is over in terms of numbers and there's a risk that if we continue to talk in terms of crisis it perpetuates this populist narrative and citizens sense of of lack of control. So as you say it's more of a political crisis than it is a migration crisis. So Camino, what has the EU done so far to address migration? So in my view there are three elements to any migration policy and I'm going to be blunt and politically incorrect as I am. First one is basically kicking those who we do not want to be here out. And that also includes not allowing those who want to come in. The second element is bring those who are wanted in. So basically, and the third element is doing something about those who are already here. And that's the integrating uh, migrants and doing something uh, about them once they are already in Europe, a bit of things. The European Union has been extremely good at the first element, so carving uh, arrivals, as you said very rightly, they are down by 90%, and also at kicking people out, and that's the return 
uh, aspect of, of, of policies, and we'll talk uh, about that later, I'm sure, by you know striking deals with other countries. Um, we've been very good at that. It hasn't really been that good at the second element, which is you know bringing the wanted in, bringing those that we need in. So that's the legal migration part of things. And integrating migrants is such a hot political potato that is not even being discussed in any meaningful way anywhere in Europe. So from the three elements of migration policy, we are very good at one, but we need to look very much at the other two. Yeah, I think that's a good overview. Maybe if we could talk a bit about some of the specifics of what the EU's done, some of their readmission agreements. We've been very good at preventing people from coming, and that we've done through boosting our border controls, and that's a good thing because we need to protect uh, Schengen's external borders so that the internal borders can, can keep being open. We've put together proposals for a better and more robust border guard, so we've given more resources to Frontex and the likes. And then another of the things that the European Union has been trying to do is to increase its poor return records. And that's we've done through things like the EU-Turkey deal, but also through other means like striking deals with African countries, not only based on, say, you know, traditional developments uh, and aids and cooperation goals, but mostly through migration focus agreements, which we have very well tried to disguise as, you know, partnerships and trade and investment deals, uh, but which are quite dubious on many, many aspects as well. I think it's interesting to think about the framing of this as well and that it's been successful in terms of returning people. And whilst that's true, of course, that can't be the only aspect to EU migration policies. And so there have been some real drawbacks to some of these arrangements. So the the EU-Turkey deal received a lot of criticism, both legal concerns and human rights concerns. So actually, in the legal basis of the deal, it's quite ambiguous and therefore quite hard to adjudicate on. And also that the deal deems Turkey as a safe destination, despite the fact that Turkey doesn't fully apply the 1951 Refugee Convention and that it has a poor asylum system. So it's come at the cost of some migrants' human rights. And there's also been criticism of the billions of euros that the EU is giving in financial support to Turkey when Erdogan's regime is under a lot of criticism for human rights abuses. And then the migration compacts that you mentioned, like the EU Trust Fund for Africa, the money is allocated to the control aspect of migration. And part of that has involved outsourcing the EU's border control to unscrupulous authorities, for example, in Sudan or Niger or Libya. And I suppose the other point, which is to do with democracy in the EU, is that the trust fund is dispersed by emergency mechanisms. So there's no European Parliament oversight. So the EU's migration policy can't only be about containment and numbers. It also has them centred around values as well, given the EU's reputation as being a global norm setter. And I think the other problem that the migration compacts face is actually whether or not they're successful in reducing irregular migration which is partly what they're branded as achieving and so there's economic arguments which show that 
development funding actually increases migration for quite a long time before it starts to decrease migration because people's aspirations increase because of education people are able to better able to afford the journey and population will increase so africans are going to continue to migrate to europe however much the eu invests in african countries and so the eu should think about investing in legal migration channels right and to me this links with another uh, very important question when we talk about migration, and that's the EU's Africa policy. Because obviously, we've been talking a lot for the past three years or four years, we've been talking a, lo- a lot about a migration crisis, which is actually a refugee crisis. Uh, we've been talking a lot about numbers of people coming from Syria, from Libya, from, from places like that. Uh, but those are obviously refugees, and that's a question of if you want international law, and they are both the member states and the European Union's hands are rather tight in the sense that there is an obligation to protect and give refuge to those fleeing conflicts. However, we are not necessarily thinking about the other side of things, so the economic migration. And the economic migration, it's going to come mainly from Africa, as you were rightly saying. I'm tired of reading, you know, pieces and and, and listening to people saying, how can we stop migration from, from happening? We will not stop migration from happening because precisely of the elements that you just said. So not only is Europe experiencing a demographic crisis, but we also have an African continent, which is becoming richer which rather counterintuitively, as you said, uh, it's going to increase uh, migration to Europe coming from Africa, uh, but also African population is, is supposed to be double by uh, 2050. To me, what the European Union is failing to do is listening to what African countries have to say. And that's we, we've seen very recently um, in the efforts, so to speak, of the African Union to stop some of the European Union's ideas of disembarkation platforms and, and, and all those far-reaching proposals. So what I think that's going to happen in the coming years is that if we keep on our focus on you know, border controls and return and sending money to African countries without thinking what they want, is that we're going to keep on having an issue, this time probably not related to refugees, but related to economic migration, and that we are not going to be able to ripe the benefits of a proper system of you know, communication in between Europe and Africa in a, in a way that we both benefit from migration. Because to me what is very important is that we do convey the message that migration is not going to stop, that if it's well done, it's good for both parties, but it does have tremendous trade-offs for both hosting societies and sending countries. And that's something that I'm still to hear a politician saying, Exactly. And I think the thing is that leaders are underestimating their citizens and actually fueling populist narratives by resorting to these simplistic containment and control ideas, because all that does really is increase people's anxiety and make people feel that there's some crisis that needs to be controlled. And that doesn't allow room for opening pathways. So I think it's important that leaders, as you say, acknowledge the reality that people will still come to Europe. And also make the more positive case that Europe actually needs migrants and that Europe is facing this demographic crisis and has job vacancies that it needs to fill. 
And the current state of legal migration in the EU is is not good. There's no real coherent approach and EU-wide routes are really quite bureaucratic and complex and usually run at the member state level. So member states are running their own national conflicting migration policies. A good example of that is the blue card system, which the EU introduced in 2009. It was supposed to be a bit like the American green card to allow highly skilled people into Europe. But it's a really long process and the admission criteria are very restrictive. And they also don't offer free movement within the EU for cardholders, which means that a lot of migrants opt to apply for national visas instead. And there have been some attempts to improve it, but these have been stuck in negotiations between the council and the parliament. So I think we can see that if it's this difficult to reach consensus on high-skilled migration, we can see the barriers to discussing low-skilled migration. And there's a real reluctance on the part of leaders to tackle legal migration. There's this argument that, you know, how can we move on to legal channels and opening migration channels until a regular migration is is down? But I think that's something that is probably never going to happen. Irregular migration will never be down to a level that anti-immigration voices find acceptable. Some populists want it down to zero. The EU really needs to get moving on opening pathways, regardless of the state of irregular migration. Right, so I think there are two myths that we need to like bust here. The first one is that regular migration channels or legal migration channels can solve the problem of irregular migration. That's never going to happen. People migrate, they do not migrate under beautifully constructed schemes of I'm an engineer and I'm going to go to Latvia because in Latvia they need engineers. Irregular migration will still happen Networks of migrants, language, cultural heritage and links are very, very important. So we need to decouple the conversation of irregular migration from that of legal channels to Europe. So that's the first, the first myth. The second myth, in my view, is that the European Union will ever be able to actually have an EU-wide legal migration scheme. As you very rightly said, we tried to do something similar to the green cards and it hasn't really worked. And part of the reason is precisely because the member states do not want to give up competencies on this. So our suggestion in our paper, Beth, I think, is quite reasonable. Instead of being overly ambitious on a file that you're going to, you know, like fail miserably on, why not trying to go for a more modest approach for things that could help member states being on board, for projects which could kind of try to match labor markets with um, migrants wishing to come to Europe, but also at the same time trying to help uh, sending countries to keep people there. Uh, not only because, once again, um, we, don't, we don't want um, everybody coming to Europe, as the populists would say, but also because it is very important for sending countries to also start building proper networks so that you know, their talent does not flee. Okay, so there are two, in our view, actually very good initiatives on the table which respond to these questions. So perhaps I can talk about the Commission one, and if you want, you can explain the, the Global Skill Partnership later. So the European Commission has launched what they call projects on legal migration, and this, as I was saying, is not a, an overly ambitious grand scheme, but it's basically a framework 
to help member states plug the labor market needs through training in sending countries. And this, I think, is well done because it doesn't judge member states' labor markets because, as we know, our labor market needs differ a lot. So, you know, like it's absolutely not the same to be Belgian than to be Greece. But it also allows private organizations and trade associations and the likes to be part of these projects. So to, to cluster together with like-minded organizations, or as I was saying before, associations or whatever, and say, you know what, we need plumbers once again. And we are a, the plumbers association of, I'm, I'm totally inventing this, of, you know, like three member states. And we'd like to train those plumbers according to European standards and get some of these people that we're going to get anyway trained in their countries of origin so that we can actually get the people with the right skills to do the right jobs and help them integrate should they wish to integrate or help them build some skills which could be useful for them if they ever if they ever return uh, to their to the countries of origin so i think these like micro projects on very specific parts of the labor market have a much higher chance of success than thinking about some sort of green card because as you were rightly saying before the blue card is about high skill migration but when we look at labor needs and, and the actual people who migrate, we are rather looking at low to middle scale migration. So we are looking at plumbers, but we are also looking at people working as assistant nurses and all these sort of things. That's one project which I think could have a lot of future. Unfortunately, member states are not necessarily you know, very much into it. For now, the projects are still ongoing. I'm not sure whether any of them has worked. And I think that's part of what we were talking about before, of how irrational the whole debate has become. That even, you know, if Europe is offering you money to do something that you're going, probably going to have to do anyway, because it has to do with migration, you just keep quiet and, and stop talking about it. So the, the other idea is the global skill partnerships, which were suggested by an economist called Michael Clemens. And the idea is to try to solve the shortage of skilled workers in both developing and middle income regions through legal migration. So it's probably best explained through an example. So let's take an example of a global skill partnership for Moldovan nurses in Germany. So Maria and Ion are two young, low-income Moldovans who train as registered nurses in Moldova. Maria wants to work in Germany and Ion wants to work in Chisinau. Training each of them costs €10,000 and neither of them can afford it. So a private hospital group in Germany would finance all of Maria's training and half of Ion's for a total of €15,000. And in return, Maria would commit to work within its hospital network for at least four years. And on her higher German salary, Maria is able to pay back the entire 15,000 euros over that period, which is worth just 10% of her earnings. So this is an example of how everybody can win. Nurses' salaries are higher in developed countries and training costs are lower in middle-income countries. And so Clements is using that gap to finance training for both migrants and non-migrants at little or no cost to taxpayers. It's a very innovative idea and actually quite a workable one. It's just that there would be a range of other conditions that would need to be in place for such a skill partnership to work properly so that's things like full recognition of qualifications between the countries ways to enforce repayment if graduates don't fulfill their work commitments etc but there are possible ways around that so I think it's definitely a viable option for the EU to think about 
Obviously, Beth, one of the problems that both initiatives have, how to sell this to people, and that's why our paper is called Why Europe Needs Legal Migration, How to Sell It, because some of the fears that, that we can identify is, you know, like, why should we pay to train people abroad where these jobs could go to the local population, even if probably no local person would like to do those specific jobs. There are fears as well about a potential race to the bottom and, you know, trade unions to be on board. What is important to remember is that this logic that we are self-sufficient, we have enough people who want to do these jobs and we are able to close our borders so that no foreigner comes and, you know, steal our jobs is delusional. Um, so these people are going to come anyway. And then the choice is in between spending taxpayer money uh, to train them in your country, uh, which is going to be more expensive, and to deal with the time that these people take to acquire the skills, but also to learn the language, to learn you know, the culture and all these sort of things, or do that in their countries of origin, while, once again, perhaps at the same time incentivizing some of them to, to stay at home, which is, you know, like whether we like it or not, uh, some, some of the policy goals of, of some governments in Europe. The selling part of these projects is very, very important, and that's it's a job for governments and politicians to do. I think that's completely right, Camina. I think what we've realised through writing this paper is that European migration policy is, at the moment, it's not really about facts, it's about narrative and that containment is not the answer to Europe's migration woes. And we're not saying that legal migration is either, but European migration policy really needs to be better balanced and that leaders should be resisting the siren call of the populace. So thanks very much for talking to me today, Camino, and talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CR underscore EU.